Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hi, I'm Erin. And I'm David. And this is Talking Shop. And today we are talking about capacity ratings, something that I personally have kind of a love-hate relationship with. <laughs> Same. I mean, I, I love I love the prospect research uh, we get, and I love my prospect research teams everywhere I've been. And they're critical. I mean, I have a huge bias here because I started out in prospect research, but but let me just say from the get-go, you can't run an effective shop if you don't have capacity ratings for your your constituents. It's a it's a fundamental way of organizing your work. So let's just kind of make sure that that's clear. So true. So true. But the thing that kind of makes me nuts about them is the relative literal mindedness um, that people have about them. And, you know, from both sides, there's a there's an expectation that is completely unreasonable that prospect researchers can you know, magically come up with a pristinely precise, accurate capacity rating. And on the flip side, there's um, an idea that if you, what was my other point? (laughs) I guess if you're not asking enough, you're not asking at capacity. Yes. Oh, yes, that's it. That the other thing is that there's this idea that if you're not um, asking at capacity that there's something wrong with the way you're asking. I don't think that's necessarily fair to fundraisers. Sometimes it's worth looking at, but I think that people, we really need as a, as a profession to kind of talk about these. What, what is their purpose and how seriously should we take them? Totally agree. So here, so here's the first thing I'll tell you a good example. My, when working with you, um, in one institution and then moving to another institution, I got so comfortable and familiar working with my prospect research and management team that the first person I called even before I started my job at Northwestern was our head of prospect research and management. Oh, that's I cool. frankly spooked them out. I kind of scared them because they're like, <laughs> why are you calling me? You're freaking me out. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to want data and you're the person who has it. And it wasn't entirely about prospect research per se. It was more about portfolios and, and how well we're penetrating. But, portfolios but but a big part of it is understanding the prospect research apparatus because you're only as good as your operations team in many ways yeah um because it's how can you find and identify and engage the right people and how do you know that yeah you're absolutely right and and truth be told it's it's not even just about your prospects as individuals it's about your institutional capacity you know i i have lived through several new presidents, presidential transitions, and um, new vice presidents and things of that nature. Always smooth. <laughs> Always smooth <laughs> as, as a whistle and never never awkward or bumpy. That's right. Um, no stress. That's right. <laughs> but, but in each case, um, I, find, I find myself at some point providing 
some kind of assessment of the total capacity of the constituent base, because I think people need to kind of have a, their arms around what that looks like. I agree. I, I'm, I'm always, because I'm in my shop, I'm sort of considered the data guy who does fundraising. They're asking me, how much can we raise? Mm-hmm. And, I, and on, on an annual basis, I'm pretty good at figuring that out based on the pipeline that we have. Um, I'm really good at that uh, within a range. And we have a really, really cool projections tool that we created at DePaul and that I've been using at Northwestern. And I discovered I didn't know that I was using Bayesian logic, but apparently I was. Um, this is the kind of term that he throws around it, in it casual statistics. <laughs> So if you know Nate Silver, you know Bayesian logic, right? So that's what he does for all of his analysis. So I didn't realize I was using it, but it's really helpful. And it's a lot of it's based on ask amount. And the ask amount is oftentimes based on capacity rating. Right. right? But but there's a major problem in the way that um, both prospect research teams and fundraising leaders talk to each other about these, these issues. And right. I'm going to tell you a couple of things that I've observed that I find interesting and sort of hilarious at times. Um, at Not just at where I've worked, but at many places when I talk to people around the country. So the first thing is people take the prospect fundraisers, take the prospect research ratings as so literal as to be the (laughs) Bible. Yeah. And they're like, and then, and and oftentimes academic leaders will especially take prospect research capacity ratings as truly literal. Yes. Why are we asking for a million when we can ask for 10 million or 50 million? And the answer to that question could have 30, I mean, it could be 30 different answers and right. reasons for the million dollar. It could be that, well, this person is not really worth or capable of making that much. A, they don't have the liquidity to do that mm-hmm. or the capacity to do it right now. Um, B, this is just one gift along the way toward a larger gift. Right. Or, you know, or C, this person doesn't like us very much. Um, right. and we're like, there's so many different reasons for that, but they often take it as like literal. Also, what is the capacity rating based on? Is it, Ability to make a gift today over the next five years? Is it their likely capacity over their lifetime, which is absurd because we don't know how much someone's going to be worth in 10 years. It could be two times what they are now. It could be half of what they're worth now, depending on how capital markets and their own companies do, right? So there's so many different things. I completely, completely agree. And the other thing too is how was the rating derived? Because there's a couple of different ways that these things are approached. One is to go to um, data vendors and get your whole um, list screened. And that is really valuable. Yes. Um, but then you have prospect researchers who are professionals who are doing detailed, um, specific research on the, the prospect, and they are able to refine the rating and make it much more precise. So first of all, I should back up and mention that um, I remember... Caltech a few years ago, and my pal Christy Cates, who is uh, now in Denver, she came up with a, she and her team came up with a really interesting model for um, evaluating the degree of quote unquote truthiness of the capacity rating based on the source of the capacity rating. It was very, very interesting. But I think, you know, for people walking into fundraising offices or certainly for people who are on boards or presidents, they don't, they're looking at a number. They don't know how that was derived. So let me explain for those of you who don't work in prospect research. Here's the, the ways that those numbers are derived. Generally speaking, um, those numbers are derived by gathering public information 
and it, you know, on the wealth and assets that are visible, which right away, you know, if think about your own wealth and assets and how much of that is not visible <laughs> to people. Um, because as you can imagine, um, you know, prospect researchers are not breaking laws or hacking into banks. They are doing ethical work where they're trying to figure out these ratings, you know, in a, in a upfront way. So basically they're taking those few pieces of data that they can find and trying to um, extrapolate from that um, a, a wealth level that they can then um, project a capacity score to. But part of the thing that always gets me about capacity ratings is, and I guess this is to your point earlier about what is it based on, I always feel like, well, capacity to give to what? Because I might be have a totally different gift capacity depending on what you ask me for. And I might feel in two different cases that I'm giving at my quote unquote maximum capacity, right? Well, and also how, where do we fit in the scheme of your philanthropic passion? So right. are we in your top three philanthropies or, or not? And, you know, so if, we're, right. if you're, if you're trying to get Oprah Winfrey or Jeff Bezos to give, give you money, maybe they like your organization, you know, but maybe they don't. Right. And so the capacity is there, but maybe the affinity is not, right? Right. And there, or the direct connection. So there's a lot of things going there. And then to your point earlier about like what's, what is publicly available. My, the two biggest gifts that I've worked on, um, or at least two of the biggest gifts I worked on, had the, the prospects when I worked with them had never made a major gift mm -hmm. at all. Their biggest gift in one case was 5000 and then the other case was around 50000 And they, their money was, in, in both cases, not obvious to the fundraisers or right. particularly the research team. Um, because in one case they work for a privately held company in the other case, they hadn't done research since this person's company went public. Right. Um, and so the research ratings for both were below a million dollars and the person whose biggest gift was 5,000 ended up giving 40 million mm -hmm. and the person whose capacity, whose biggest gift is 50,000 ended up giving now 29 million. Yeah. So, wow. and so, and this was because we were able to un understand more clearly their capacity and their wealth after a fundraiser talked to them. Right. I don't know exactly how much they're worth, but I have a lot more awareness now. The person who gave 40 million is in the Forbes list. So they're a billionaire. <laughs> so I know based on what Forbes says, and typically right. people downplay how much they're worth in Forbes mm -hmm. based on what I, people I know who are on the list have told me. <laughs> um, sometimes they play it up depending on who it is. <laughs> yeah. I won't go into that. Um, but some, but a lot of times they downplay it. Right. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the other case, it's like if you, if you haven't done your research more recently, you might not have noticed a liquidity event where someone's wealth was revealed in a very public way. Can we stop and appreciate the expression liquidity event, <laughs> <laughs> which is an expression that I think you adopted from one of our donors years ago who said, I'm about to experience a liquidity event and forevermore, I will always think of that phrase when I think of those. It's, it's a fundraiser's favorite phrase. I'm just going to tell you that liquidity <laughs> event. Liquidity generally is a good phrase, but, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of it is what, like, where's their wealth and how is it tied up and understanding those things. So in our system, we have two ratings. We have the prospect research rating, which is based on a variety of factors. Oftentimes it might just be what we got from a third party vendor, mm -hmm. or it could be if a prospect research person went in and did as much as research as they could using you know, like another, maybe other third-party vendors where they got a deeper dive, like WealthX or something, where they right. have a, a clearer sense of someone's 
total net worth and liquidity. Um, but it's still opaque in many cases. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. And then we, so we have research rating, but then we have officer rating. Mm-hmm. And in our system, officer rating always trumps research rating mm-hmm. because, again, we have lots of people in our database who are local billionaires who are never going to give big gifts to us. They're in there because they attended some gala and they have spent 5000 for a table right. because one of their friends was getting honored. Yeah. And so they show up, but they're not really a real prospect. But when, when the research team looks at it, they're like, oh, this person's worth $3 billion. We're like... That's great. And they're a trustee <laughs> at another university down in Hyde Park, south of us. Yeah. They're not going to give us any money. So, you know, so and maybe they will. Yeah, but, but we've it's gotta, not going to be as much. It's not going to be as much. And we'd have to, we'd have to spend some time trying to unlock their passions and figure that out. So I think it's, it's a lot of different factors. Right. And I always say that fundraisers are good at figuring out two of three important factors. They're good at figuring out capacity, you know, after doing a little bit of, you know, discussion with the prospect and doing whatever research they can find. Um, especially with the help of prospect research teams, they're pretty good at figuring out the person's affinity, right? Right. And they don't think about the timing. When will this person be ready? Mm-hmm. And you you alluded to that earlier with liquidity, which is, I know a lot of people who have enormous wealth, and it's all tied up into a privately held company, right? With very little current liquidity, right? And until there's some sort of event, whether they have you know a, a public offering or their company is sold. Or, you know, whatever that may be, they're not able to make large gifts to you easily. It doesn't mean they can't do it. Mm-hmm. And there's ways to do gifts that are illiquid um, if your organization is sophisticated enough to accept them. But it's very complicated. I want to start a movement to call those illiquid gifts solid gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Food for thought. Um, no, but but I agree. I think this that... is not a physics podcast, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, the thing that I think is is notable in those instances is think about how vitally important that capacity rating is. I mean, if only giving is, is what you're considering, you may not even recognize the potential of that prospect. And, you know, there are definitely entrepreneurs who have their money tied up in businesses that, you know, they're, they are brave dreamers basically as by nature, they're going to, um, want to invest their funds in something that's important to them. So continue to cultivate them the way they appear on the spreadsheet. As long as you know that the relationship is going well and that it's worth your time, I think um, capacity ratings can be a great guide for whether it's an issue of somebody's not interested versus an issue of timing. Yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. The other thing I would say is, you know, you have to have a way to determine where to start in terms of who to talk with. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're a regional-based fundraiser and you're going to focus your efforts on New York City or London or Detroit, you know, or Dallas, Texas. Who are the people you're going to talk to? Mm -hmm. How do you decide that? So past giving is always a great first place to, to go. Right. Right. So, but a lot of organizations don't have a long history of philanthropy for their particular alumni if you're a university or for their constituency. So that's not always a great guide, but it's better than mm-hmm. nothing, right? You can look at job title. You can, if you know the city well, like I grew up in Dallas, you can look at, um, you can look at even street, you know, streets and zip codes and things right. like that in a sense, which is what, what research ratings are oftentimes based on. Right. Um, but research ratings are a great way to, to complement all those other, you know, data points. 
And to find a way, you know, between two or three different data points, past giving and research ratings are often a good combo, mm -hmm. to identify a tier one, tier two, and tier three, and then go out and qualify and disqualify those individuals and determine, you know, hey, this is a good prospect. Yes, there's wealth, but no interest. Or no, there's not that much wealth. A lot of interest, but maybe not where I need to spend my time and energy. Right. And so those are good use, like useful tools for fundraisers. Um, but when someone says, what's our total capacity, I can say, we don't really know. And here's another good example of that is we just finished a, you know, a 10 year campaign and 79% of our major donors had never made a major gift. There so, you, go. you know, and 95% of our money came from gifts of a hundred thousand plus. Right. 5% came from gifts below a hundred thousand plus and a total of six point six point one billion dollars. So. A massive amount of money came from major donors, and most from you know eight large seven and eight figure donors, but a lot right. from six and seven figure donors, smaller seven figure donors, and those are people largely who were previously unidentified, and many of them probably didn't have a very good capacity rating if they even had a capacity rating right. at first when we started the campaign, right. and because fundraising is dynamic and you're looking at a long period of time. You can't really determine what is our capacity for this campaign because you just don't know. Right. Well, and here's the thing. Capacity is dynamic, right? That's right. I mean, right. People, people have things that happen in their life that change their capacity. Well, and what I've said to our team is for the next campaign, whenever we start that, we just finished ours you know, a year and a half ago. The next campaign, the donors who gave seven figures in that campaign... I hope we'll give eight figures in the next campaign. Mm -hmm. And we should be looking at those who are capable of and likely to make gifts at that level. Same thing, low level, seven figure to mid seven, six to seven figure, et cetera. Right. And we need to figure out how do we grow our capacity um, from the existing donor base and find new people on top of that using research ratings, among other things, mm -hmm. to grow that capacity. And that's the, that's the interesting thing is to look at your data, understand who you're talking to, who should you be talking to, who has created wealth since you finished the campaign mm -hmm. that you didn't even know about. Right. So right. go to the places where wealth is being created en masse, whether it's in San Francisco or New York or Chicago or other places. And that also is incredibly important. It's a dynamic process. So let me tell you my two pet peeves when it comes to capacity rating. And by the way, let me start out by just complimenting you and telling you how much I appreciate you have always been really a great partner to prospect researchers. I really appreciate the respect that you have for their profession and also the understanding that you have about, you know, how, how ethics and, you know, the, the availability of information kind of bind their ability to fully understand everything there is to know about a prospect. Um, two pet peeves. One is, the people who will say, and I've, I, I wish I had only seen this a handful of times. I've seen this so many times when people will say, you rated this person at $1.5 million, but I met them and they can clearly give $25 million. And they're angry at the researchers as if the researchers are supposed to be, I don't know, hiding in the bushes or something, <laughs> paying attention to every nook and cranny of their lives. You know, people forget that this profession is based on publicly available information. We have to be able to say that we are looking at things in an ethical way. We're not digging around into people's private lives, right? That's right. We have not yet hired paparazzi to be part of our <laughs> prospect research team. Right. No, I mean, it, it is so true. And I, 
I think it, it illustrates a, a bit of ignorance or a, quite a bit of ignorance on right. the part of fundraisers. Just like if a, if a, if a prospect researcher expected a fundraiser always to close big gifts from prospects that have a high ratings. Yes. And what it means is they're not talking to each other. Right. They don't understand the process of doing the ratings or the process of fundraising. And it just requires a partnership. And that's why the first person I called when I was going to Northwestern was prospect research because I value that relationship so much that I wanted to know not only for myself, but especially for the team I was going to manage that they were going to have the best available information and to know that the prospect research team didn't have to be the, the prospect cops. Right. The, the proposal cops. I don't want right. them like I'm the bad guy, not the prospect research and management team. Yes. But also that I understand that sometimes really great prospects don't have a big rating because they may work at a private company and that stuff is totally opaque. Or, right. you know, it's all circumstantial. You know, yes. I'm, we had a prospect who was rated as having a hundred million dollar capacity. And it's because they lived in an apartment and when <laughs> and the yes. person who, uh, when the research, the third party vendor thought that they owned the building where the right. apartment was. This happens sometimes. This is why you should never take, um, without question, third party vendor data and not have a researcher kind of look it over. Um, it's, it's just not it, it, stuff like that will happen or name matches will get screwed up, et cetera. And right. it's really embarrassing. That's right. And I just, I just wish people would use a bit more logic um, right. and sort of have a better understanding. Like any fundraiser who thinks that research is going to be a pure guide in terms of how much someone's capable or willing to give doesn't really understand fundraising. In my right. opinion. I had somebody that I worked with who um, I, I'm sure as a compliment um, used to say, pretty regularly to me when I was managing prospect researchers, you guys are like the CIA, you can find anything. And I know that that was meant as a compliment, but it really kind of set my teeth on edge because the prospect research team is not the CIA, right? And, and the nature of the work is very different and people need to have realistic expectations. If anything, the fundraisers are the CIA. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they're the ones out in the field. I mean, you might be the yeah. analyst, but we're the ones. That, no, I'm certainly in all seriousness. I agree with you. And I think it's just people forget. And it's strange because it's so incredibly obvious that people forget this is a human business. Yes. It's relationships. It's exactly. Relationships. And so for the person who is the data guy to say this is a human relationship business, <laughs> which I understand at heart. Yeah. Now, I will say we can use information. Yes. To understand our work better. And that's the whole point of this podcast, frankly. Right. Exactly. But, but, but it is a human, it is about human relationships. And we have to acknowledge that human relationships are complex. And so that's, that's the thing is in terms of, in terms of ratings, it's so important to just have a better understanding. And the longer you do this, the more you understand it, in my opinion. So you're touching upon my second pet peeve because I have two pet peeves about this. One is the, absolutely bonkers expectation that prospect researchers are supposed to guess the capacity to the penny. The other is on the flip side, prospect researchers who, you know, I've, I've worked with many who are like this, who really kind of don't think through in an empathetic way, the way fundraisers need to contextualize that information. Let me tell you what I, um, a specific example that I mean. 
I've had conversations with researchers who say, you know, this prospect was solicited for $150 million or million thousand dollars, but they were rated at $175,000. So you're leaving $25,000 on the table and they get irritated by this until I kind of ask them to think about what, what do we have in the menu of giving options <laughs> that is $175,000, right? So there's always this expectation that people are supposed to ask to the maximum amount of somebody's capacity. And I would just say, maybe this is a controversial opinion. I would, I would say that as a person who has worked a really long time on that side of the table, I don't think that that makes sense. I think that the capacity rating is a guide, but it should not be taken as a literal tool to, you know, determining what people should be asking. Well, same thing on the fundraiser side. Um, and I completely agree with you. And I sometimes I will go through portfolio reviews and my team, if they ever listen to this podcast, will understand. They will, they will, they just, won't. Just, they won't. <laughs> Fair point. This will resonate. Um, cause, the ask amounts for many of them, I'll sit through and they'll be, you know, we'll talk about 25 prospects and the ask amounts for 18 of the 25 are at 100,000. Right. Guess what our minimum threshold is for a major gift? 100,000. <laughs> so the prospect right. capacity research might be 100,000 for most of them, which is fair. And I said, okay, guys, let me ask you a question. I should say y'all. Um, to refer my text. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, y'all. So let, let's think about this. If I raise the minimum threshold for a major gift to $250,000, which, how many of these people would stay in your portfolio? How many would you get rid of because they're not capable of making a gift of $250,000? And this is a real scenario because we're considering this right now. Right. And almost to a person like, I probably wouldn't get rid of anybody. I said, so you're going to raise your, your ass to two fifty? They said, yeah. I said, so tell me why you're not starting at two fifty. <laughs> yeah. And so explain yeah. that to me. They said, well, I didn't want to get anybody's hopes up or have, you know, weird expectations. I said, I would rather you ask for 500,000 and get 100,000 than ask everybody you work with to get 100,000. Yeah. I said, and I think you've got to understand people and how do they make money? How do they spend money? How do they think about money? Are they in the wealth accumulation phase yes. of life, the wealth distribution phase of life? You know, are they someone who is extremely philanthropic on a relative base compared to their, their, their capacity or are they not? Right. And all those things matter and will have an impact on how much they're willing to give and how much you should be asking. And if you don't know those things, you can't ask for the right gift. Right. And it should be self-evident when you're asking for the gift that this is the right amount to you and the prospect in most cases. Right. I've had a few people surprised by the number of digits that I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. but And sometimes they do it. Yeah, exactly. They surprise they themselves. It's Only okay. one person has ever been mad at me and I was okay with that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's a good ratio for how many times you've it, asked. And it. he could have done it, but I'm not, <laughs> not going to go there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, this is why these things need to be taken in context yeah. because there, there are different attitudes. And you mentioned psychology. I mean, that is absolutely true. I, I personally feel that, um, the way that people make money and the way they start out in their life truly impacts the way that they look at money. And it can, it can be different for different people. My dad grew up in, in abject poverty. I mean, he, he was born in the depression, terrible, terrible poverty. He was a person who gave away every penny he had. 
Why? Because to him, he already knew what it was like to be without any pennies, right? So to him, he had no, he had no compunction about just giving people money if they needed it. And there are, and I have aunts and uncles who grew up in the same situation who were very miserly about it. So you have, this is why development officers are very important to the capacity rating process and why it's so important to think about the psychology of people. Because I'm telling you, whether we like it or not, different people react differently to the idea of being philanthropic. And that's just, that's just the way it is. It's all about empathy, understanding your, the donors you're working Amen. with. Amen. Yep. Exactly. Well, I think we've run the gamut on, pro, on capacity ratings. This has been really fun talking to you about Indeed. this, actually. Um, all right. Well, thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to checking in with you next time on Talking Shop. All right. <music>